Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me. It's a tender and irreverent celebration of the connections we forge with women, viewed through the lens of my own relationship with my five adorable and infuriating little sisters. It's available from bookshops nationwide and if you'd like to support the podcast, buying the book is the best way for you to do that. If you're on the Kent coast, why not come and buy it from the Margate Bookshop, my lovely local? This week, our fabulous guest is Aisha Malik, the author of the smash hit Sophia Khan is Not Obliged, which has been described as the Muslim Bridget Jones, meaning we have a heroine who doesn't drink but smokes a lot. This book was selected for this year's City Read London series, and we'll be talking as well about Aisha's brilliant brand new book, This Green and Pleasant Land. Bilal lives in a sleepy village on the south coast. Against his better judgment, he decides to honour his dying mother's wish and build a mosque there. The locals do not rush to supply funding or planning permission. Aisha has written an extremely funny, challenging and reflective novel about prejudice and love. This is a writer at the peak of her powers, meditating on humans at their best and worst. I truly loved it. We talked to Aisha about class, praying, love stories and hardy heroines. This so we're in um we're in Aisha's um, bedroom. We're in uh, South London, and is this your your childhood yes, bedroom? Yeah. So and there are books on every flat surface where there could be books, and some of those flat surfaces are other books. Basically, yes. Are there, are there any books here that you've had since you were a teenager that you grew up with? Yes. So, The Wizard of Oz was given to me as like one of my birthday presents growing up. Oh, so which birthday? So, um, I think it was probably my, like, 11th, 10th or 11th or something like that. And these these guys here as well. Oh, those are beautiful. Yeah. I'm just, is it all right if I grab the Wizard yeah, of Oz? Yeah, sure. Oh, this is, looks like a really, really lovely edition. So, illustrated by Linda Birch. It's, I how would you describe the size? It's, all, it's one of, it's not a, it's, um, it is illustrated and it's kind of, it's not the it's not it's not the usual size. I guess is it? it's almost like picture book size, yeah, maybe. Yeah, and there's yeah. you can only see the scarecrow on the front, um, and Dorothy and her gingham and Toto and a lovely. It's a very sort of rural yeah, yellow brick road. Yeah, and you can tell it's old. I feel a bit you? bad that they've not. Do you think that maybe like Linda Birch drew the scarecrow? And it's like, oh, the Tin Man. <laughs> that's going to be really hard. <laughs> You have a good point there, actually, yeah. So, do you seen the film? Are you a big fan of the film? Or? Oh, my God, loved it. Every Christmas. Yeah, I used to have to fight um, with the family over watching Wizard of Oz or a Bollywood channel, so... How often did she win? Not very often, <laughs> Daisy. Not very often. I also have a copy of Alice in Wonderland, but I think my niece has stolen that from me. So, I'm not sure oh, where so that's you're, gone. you're passing it on. That's really lovely. Um, um, so, what was it like? intentionally. So, did you have an idea of what this was before you... Read it, so was it weird? Is, yeah, is this yeah, yeah, I knew the story beforehand. One of the first books where you kind of were really familiar with the film and then encountered the book? I just remember being different. obsessed with the book and I would read it every night um, and then once I finished Got it... your name in it. Yeah, 
really old handwriting. Very neat handwriting. <laughs> I don't know why it's gone to shit now. My handwriting, that is. What do you think it was about it that you loved it so much? Was this the I idea of adventure or was it the friendship? I think it was. And it was the idea of this yellow brick road and the fairies and the munchkins. Um, it was just, I don't know why I loved it so much. And I never understood why she wanted to go back home. That's a really interesting yeah, idea. I always thought, oh, why don't you just want to spend your life in Oz? Why don't any of us just spend our lives in Oz? In Oz. <laughs> I see as well you've got the Andrew Carter's fairy tales yeah. so in that kind which, of which by the way vein. I've not read yeah. ah. so a lot of the books you're going to pick up I'm going to say actually I've not read that yet excellent you know I have this edition it's really beautiful and it's, it's pristine yeah. um, possibly because it's <laughs> because not read it so how did it come into your life I think um, it was when I was doing my master's in creative writing and uh, my supervisor suggested Angela Carter and a friend of mine who was also doing the course um, was a huge fan of her, so I bought it, and as you can see, I've never actually read it, which is a shame, but I'm glad it's on my shelf, because I will get to it one day. When did you start writing? What made you decide to do a Master's in Creative Writing? Um, I think I, I started at a fairly young age, I think, around in my teens, even even younger, actually, much younger. Um, there's a typewriter that I've stuffed under my broken drawers, oh. um, which I, I used to which which I used to um, type on when I was like twelve and write my stories. What did you study before you studied literature, creative writing? English literature. So were you always planning on yeah doing yeah. creative writing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, not doing creative, but I always wanted to be a writer. So I just bit the bullet and did it. Was there any one particular book that made you think when you were growing up reading, like, I could do this, or this is what I want to do? Um, not I could do this, but, I mean, I'm a huge Austen fan. Where are my Austens? Hidden behind there somewhere. See, I think um, that's quite cool, because so lots of people would be like, here, they're my classics, my Jane Austens, but you've obviously got them yeah, no, close to your heart. because I'm always buying books and I'm just stuffing them wherever I find room. Um, and then things get lost. But yeah, it was. I love Jane Austen so much. Oh, there's her persuasion just over there. <laughs> I'm just, just being filthy with Austen's <laughs> persuasion, like Sarah Jessica Parker's lovely. A lot of my writing, which was really awful um, in my early 20s. I'm sure that's not no, true. No, honestly, it was really bad. Um, I was inspired very much by her, but I did that thing that authors do, right? You just mimic what you love. And I was mimicking someone who wrote in the 18th century. 19th century so that didn't really work very well for contemporary purposes I think you have to try a lot of different voices before you find your own exactly yeah and she was one of my first so to speak so was there a particular but was it persuasion that I love persuasion the most actually I read Pride and Prejudice first and then I think I read Emma and it was when I came to persuasion that I was like, actually, this is my favourite of hers. Yeah. But I did love um, her um, Juvenalia, mm. um, the one that Love and Friendship is based on. You know, the film with Kate Beckinsale. Oh. The horrid woman um, who's a horrible mother and just um, kind of social climber. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, so, yeah, I love that as well. Because yes. that's quite a sort of brilliantly... All that sort of teenage exuberance, yeah. But also, it's so it's a tale told as time. It is like my parents don't understand me. Yeah, no, and yeah, I I loved it. She was my first literary love, old Austen. But was any of that inspired by the the big Pride and Prejudice adaptation, or did you just something that? Oh, really? Oh no, hang on. Which Pride and Prejudice are you talking um, about? The not the film, the the Colin Firth one. Oh, loved loved that. Obviously, I thought you meant Bride and Prejudice which is the Bollywood version ah. of Pride and Prejudice, which was really shit. Uh, and I didn't like the Kira Knightley one either. But I love the Colin Firth one. I think it's so weird and difficult, isn't it? It's such an intimate thing, our relationships with books and the way we see them. Mm. And there are so many ways that someone could get it wrong. Yeah, and the way they kind of speak to you at certain times. I remember reading Jane Eyre when I was 18, and I just didn't, I didn't understand what the fuss was. I was like, this is crap. I don't like it. <laughs> one of the biggest pieces of literature, one of the most profoundest works. And I thought, I was like, this is crap. And then I read it again in my mid to late 20s. And I absolutely loved it. And now it's one of my favourites. So it's really weird how reading something at the wrong time can just give you a really bad impression. Like you and Barbara Pym, maybe. Yes, I need to have another go at Barbara Pym. Let's talk about Barbara Pym. Because um, she, the reason I think I loved her is because she's kind of Austenian and mi a mix of kind of Austen and mi 
uh, Nancy Mitford, um, and I love Nancy Mitford. So I love Nancy Mitford yeah. a lot. How did you encounter? Have you got any? Um, so I've got this lovely little old Penguins classic hit. Oh. Sorry, this one. <gasps> oh, think... this is, I'm gonna talk people through it because realizing this is um, an hour old experience. Um, it's the proper orange penguin of love in a cold climate. Deliciously sort of flicky spine. It's a bit. It's kind of you know. Gold with age. Can I see when it was, um, I, I, what the publication date I on that was? Got oh. it, um, did you write that date, 11th no. December 2008? Oh, no, I did, South yes. Bank. Yeah, I did. So that's when it came into your yes. life. And this edition was published by Penguin in 1954. Amazing. So that's a proper... Bargain. It was like a fiver, and I was like, please, give, give it to me. So were you already a big fan when you found um, this? No, or... I don't think I was. I think that Love in a Cold Climate was the first one. Or was it The Pursuit of Love? I can't remember. And then after that, I kind of got slightly obsessed with her, So as you can see. So the I newer. See. The newer. Love in a Cold Climate. Yeah. And I love that Don't Tell Alfred. Those covers yes, are really, yeah. really fun. Yeah, really fun. I'm going to see if I can find out who the illustrator is. But I do. I love this one because I love um, Northie and them living in the embassy. And it's. I think it's yeah. quite... Modern. It's it makes me think a little bit of um you know when Agatha Christie does her sort of social details on the sixties and I think that she is, I think because things like you know *Siege of Love* and *Love and Cold Climate* such beloved books and people know them so well. But this is I think her writing so brilliantly about another world and the tension yeah. between generations. And I think mm. so many of that, so much of that rather is so relevant. Yeah. Are there any writers that you've not quite tried yet that you feel a bit ambivalent about or? Yeah. Actually, I didn't try Muriel Spark for a long time. Um, I started reading the Prime of Jean, Miss Jean Brodie, and um, I didn't really, I didn't really um, take to it. And then a friend of mine, who's a huge Sparks fan, um, sent um, gave me a couple of her books, and I really got into her. Um, she's so funny, um, and just astute. And um, I just finished reading Memento Mori. I did as well. <laughs> Weird. That was very, very spooky. <laughs> that is yeah. very weird. I loved it. And I loved yeah, it. It's, I loved it. it's yeah. like, it's basically like having a cup of hot chocolate. You know, it's just comforting, but also so it's sharp. Dark. It's dark and it's so funny. And um, yeah, I, I really, I'm really beginning to enjoy her. And I think the next one I want to read is Loitering with Intent. Mm. Oh, it's a great I title. Really love that. I cannot tell you what happens. I just remember thinking it was fantastic yeah. but are you good at remembering I am in really books? awful at remembering which is why when people speak to me about books I've read I'm like ah, which is great for this podcast by <laughs> the way um I'm like ah, no, don't I just remember feeling a certain way when I read a book and just knowing whether I loved it or not um I can't my memory is really awful so I can't really remember much do you reread much um not a lot but I do read like Bridget Jones I've reread more than a few times um, I love you on Sentimental Garbage talking about Bridget Jones. I'm so obsessed with her. And I was thinking about that as a film. I love the film. I really love the film. Yeah. But I also felt very frustrated because there's so much amazing stuff in the book about, you know, her mother yeah. and, you know, Julio and their Especially the second madcap. book. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the film really didn't do justice to the second book because um, I thought it was brilliant. Um and also, I kind of feel like the friendship dynamic, the, the films didn't really do those justice either. No, I, and also, I feel, although was she more in the second book, that you could have done such a lot more with Rebecca and that yes. really complex dynamic yeah. of having that person in your world who makes you feel quite difficult really, things. Yeah, it's such a shame that she was so one-dimensional as mm. a character because you're right, she was... She, I think we've all come across a Rebecca in our life. It's really hard to kind of unpick why she's awful because it's that sort of specific awfulness where they do make you think well maybe I'm just mad this yeah. must be me this it's has to be really me subtle form of gaslighting mm. yeah so you know I could go off on a tangent about Bridget Jones and Helen Fielding so, well, I know. <laughs> so am I right that if uh, Sophia Khan is not obliged is that your first novel yes yeah and I know that, um, you know, that's there's lots of single women talking about yeah. the, the issues of the day and I don't want to say, oh, you know, just like Bridget. But mm. I am I right that you said in interviews that you were very much inspired oh, by hugely. Helen Fielding? I basically, I was a bit lazy as a debut author, I think, because I was like, you know what? I love Bridget Jones, love the diary format. 
I'm just going to write a Muslim Bridget Jones. And uh, I think I did I don't some... think that's lazy at all. I think that's really you're, courageous and cool. You're very kind. I mean, I see how people can see it's courageous because I'm basically trying to be like Helen Fielding and there's only one Helen Fielding. But I am, yeah, hugely inspired by Bridget Jones because I just felt there was another part of the whole dating thing, Muslim dating specifically, that hadn't ever been written about um, in a way that didn't have to do with arranged marriages and honour killings, etc. I think that's really true, that I am ashamed to say I've not read many Muslim writers, really, that's... apart from me writing about, I don't know if I can say, secular life. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, um, that's because there aren't many out there. I remember reading Brick Lane, might be controversial, but I really felt like it didn't, it just didn't do justice to a kind of Muslim character because I was like, this is just the same old kind of um, narrative that's being perpetuated all the time. And it's not to say it's not true, but it just, it was very frustrating because when you see someone in a book or in a film that you identify with either religiously or um, ethnicity-wise, you really hope that they're actually going to be representative of your life and you know, most of the lives that you know, and you're nearly always disappointed. So yeah, the book also, Sophia Khan, by default, kind of tried to subvert those um, tropes that we've been fed, I guess. Have you heard from readers who found it kind of comforting or encouraging to people seeing themselves in it? Yeah, and it was really, really nice because I feel like the feedback was a lot more positive than it could have been because people really could have said, you know, she's trying to rip off Helen Fielding and really doesn't succeed. Um, And just like you did, you could say Helen Fielding, who I'm the biggest, biggest fan of, is kind of ripping off Jane Austen. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true, yeah. So, um, but no, people were really, really um, uh, positive about it. Muslim readers, non-Muslim readers. I got an email from a 60-year-old Canadian woman saying how much she loved the books. Well, that's brilliant. It's like, Yeah, it was just completely mad and lovely. I mean, I guess there are two things at play, aren't there? That yeah. Firstly, as you say, I think everybody wants to see themselves represented. Mm. And so much fiction, and not for, you know, issues of, of privilege and yeah. problems that are structural, you know, they're sort of overwhelmingly kind of white. And, and when they're you know, not, not white, and when they're brown... Mm. Um, which is a specific term, by the way, brown, Um, they tend to deal with really kind of issue-laden subjects um, and they tend to be really angry. And I didn't want to write an angry book and I didn't want to write a book that was issue-laden in a way that I was being angry at whatever group of people. I just wanted to write a book that felt hopeful and... Also, not to sound twee, but kind. Yes, yeah. that's what I love the most about it. And I think that's why people love Sophia Khan oh, and Bridget, you. because yeah. they've got that. And that's what makes them so multidimensional. Yeah. And, but I've got friends, gay friends who are journalists, mm. who are like, there are a few publications where, or whenever they want to write about a gay issue, they get in touch. I'm like, I can write about other things. things. I mean, I don't know if I can write about other things, but yeah, I do get approached a lot to write about... Um, if there's something on in the media about burqa bans or burkinis in France, you know, I will be approached about it. And I kind of, now I think I've learnt to distance myself from that conversation because mm. I think there are enough people having that conversation. There are enough people who have an opinion on it. I don't think I'll be adding anything to the narrative. Growing That's... up as a reader, could you have done with I... some Sophia Khans of your own? You know, it's really weird. I, 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 my dad bought me a lot of books when I was younger, um, but there's a there's a long there's a period of time which probably around seven or eight years where I didn't read anything at all. Weirdly, oh, I yeah. Um, I think between the ages of about maybe thirteen, fourteen to about nine, eighteen, nineteen, until so I went. It's really formative. Yeah. growing up. Times. Yeah, so it's very, very odd. I can't explain it. Was there any particular book that made you fall out of love with reading? A bit? I don't, was it studying I, things at school and feeling I frustrated? I know. I was just a very lazy student, so I just, um, I just was loath to do any kind of work. And it was 
Um, but I know that I loved the idea of writing, which is what gra made me gravitate towards doing a degree in English literature. And I loved English during my GCSEs and my A-levels, but I only ever read what I was told to read. I never read out much outside of that. Have you got any of your um, university books? I have actually. Here. here, my big old... <gasps> Is that a Norton anthology? <laughs> I'm basically a loser. Um, yeah, I can't bring myself to <gasps> throw it away. The next cost like 40 quid. You I don't know. put them away. I know. Well, I think I sold mine back to the shop. <laughs> Probably quite rightly. But I don't know why I randomly picked this up the other day. I was trying to be cultured. So... Um, I ended up reading an essay by John Milton. Oh, what was it about? Um, women's rights. Oh. Really interesting how progressive he was. Um, and I think also I'm, I, I like reading about, um, sorry, writers who, who have a religious background. I'd made a resolution to read more widely. And I was like, oh, John Milton, he's been around for a bit, hasn't he? So. And the essay is good. Exactly. I mean, because if it's me, because you think, yeah, it's not so daunting. If it was the whole, no. whole anthology. No, definitely not. Maybe that's why I loved Austen so much, because there's, even though religion is never openly kind of discussed or unpicked, mm. um, it's there in the background. Um, it's a cultural force, exactly. So, and that's something I can really relate mm. to. Um, and that's, you know, I remember reading Graham Greene's The End of the Affair and um, that that part in the book where she prays that his he hasn't died because it's been an accident or something. Um, and she says, you know, if, if he's still alive, I will embrace Catholicism and I will never see him ever again. Mm. It's just such a spine tingling moment. Mm. Um, and... Um, I don't know whether as a Muslim I could really, I don't know whether it was because of my whole faith thing that I could also relate to that. Um, and I found, yeah, so I found um, Graham Greene incredibly mesmerising, um, especially uh, the burnt out case, which I think is one of my favourites. And he's also amazing at dialogue. So lessons to be learned from him. Definitely. I was brought up Catholic, quite strictly so. Yeah. And I loved Graham Greene because he seemed to be, the only person, or the only writer who sort of talked very openly about yeah. Catholicism and how bloody hard it is and how it can make people really unhappy. Exactly. And again, that, that it's a cultural aspect mm. of your life as you know, whether or not you're practising. Mm. And that it never leads you. Yeah, absolutely. And that struggle that he has. Another author that actually um, I've only recently come across is Anita Bruckner. Oh, I love Anita Bruckner. Oh, I just read Hotel de Lac. And I read it in a day. Wow. Is, is... Um, I'm going to have a look. So yeah. it's above the bed. Fab. So this is a lovely, quite a modern looking edition of Hotel du Lac with the most evocative cover. Because I've got some lovely um, old Bruckners, a gift from producer Dale. But some of the covers are quite striking. And some of them are just like, oh, God, you see why she got that, the spinster rep. But this is just the mist and water and a sexy car and a bit of tree this, and it just it's a real picture of yearning um and this book i just i was sped through it in a day it would just spoke to my soul it was wonderful how did you come across it a friend recommendation so i love a good recommendation by people who i trust in terms of literary judgment um so who uh, do you have a particular friend or group of friends oh, so my um, um my friend isla ahmed who's actually an editor at virago she's always coming out with some um some great suggestions um so i tend to follow her advice quite a lot and another group of writer friends who um are known as the brown writer group because we're all brown which we're all very proud of we're all writers and brown how, when how, how often does that happen are these people that you know from writing or were you friends who we, started writing together no we basically just um set up a little twitter group because it was just so uncommon to have uh, someone who's of an asian background um, and be a writer and we just ended up being really great friends and now we just support each other's work help each other out um, and not a day goes past where there's not some kind of banter on whatsapp so it's yeah it's wonderful uh when you're a freelancer whatsapp just becomes your office god when you're a freelancer whatsapp is basically just the thing that you go to in order not to do any work it's the worst i really notice now as a, a white woman you know when i do events and things i think i hope 
people are really aware of who they've got on their panel and I think efforts are being made to make things more representative and inclusive but what you were saying about having having your writers group and you know it being unusual yeah. um that you, you call yourself the, the brown writers <laughs> yeah, group no. would you ever all do you find feel, do you feel uncomfortable saying that That's okay. <laughs> I do That's okay. I really really do <laughs> no, and I'm it's Not yeah me, a horrible anyway. kind of no, no, no. Don't thing to be um you know would you ever kind of all be on the same panel or is there I, you know what we um we talking done, about we had... something other than being brown writers yeah exactly we, we like doing panels together um but I mean they're all crime writers um I'm the only woman in the group and I'm the only one who doesn't actually write crime although one has moved over to more kind of um um thriller type erotica type writing which is which is amazing for like uh, I think an Asian male writer can we give give them a shout out Uh, what are they called oh yeah Alex Khan and Alex he just, Khan, yeah. I want to read your books. They sound <laughs> yeah. sexy. He just wrote Bollywood Wives, um, and it's been published by Hira, which is the new digital imprint. Um, and so we like being on panels together. I don't think I've done any panels with them actually, just because I'm a bit removed in terms of the genre. But we also like having a bit of a mix. Uh, we don't. We hate the idea of being clubbed together as just brown writers um, and having to do events that just focus mm. on our ethnicity oh, God, rather than the, the work and kind of talking about diversity. I think it's great that we're having that conversation. I think it's great that the, um, people are talking about mm. it and actually actively doing... I can really sense that people are actively trying to make things more representative, more inclusive. But do I really want to sit down and talk about that? Not really, no. Well, crime's very different and if they're kind of within a genre but you'd have hopefully not now but I'm sure there are still crime events where it's just a load of white dudes and nobody thinks that's unusual yeah it's nice to go to an event and see a a mixture of just people from different backgrounds whether that be your ethnicity whether that be your class um whatever it might be um it's just nice to have that that kind of variety I mean that's interesting as well because we've talked about Jane Austen we've talked about Nancy Mitford and Anita Bruckner we've talked about lots of other writers as well but I was thinking that all of these writers are writing about people who are either you know aristocratic or sort of the end of the middle class is definitely you know comfortable there's lots of well and I suppose perhaps a lot of it is the the time of it and the setting and you couldn't really write stories about those social intrigues because I wonder though could you not I think class is still such a huge issue I think we're just very reticent about talking about it no I mean I suppose it's more other classes aren't represented so Mm. much in literature maybe and when they are it's because it's like let's talk about the grinding poverty and not the the same with social intrigues yeah which is the same when you're from a different um, racial background so it's instead of making the race or the class something incidental to Mm. the book it is the focus of the book and I think once we've moved away from that then we'll have made real progress Um, and that would be that would be nice to see 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We'll be back to Aisha soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so valuable that you wouldn't want to leave it on your seat on the train while you went to the toilet. This week, um, I'm getting ahead of myself because I've wanted to tell you about this book for so long and I just can't keep it under my reading hat any longer. It's not out until the 4th of July. It's The Travellers, the debut novel by Regina Porter, which is published by Vintage. It's about two generations of American families and how they coexist and intertwine throughout the 20th century and beyond. It's an exploration of how race, class and gender collide in modern day America. It's an extremely ambitious book and it really, really delivers. It's my favourite sort of story, almost symphonic in its big sweeping energy and yet it's able to deliver great detail. I can't get over how Porter has created so many clear and vivid voices in such a full universe. I truly love this book. That's The Travellers by Regina Porter. It's available for pre-order now and future you will thank you. Now, back to Aisha. I want to ask you about the cookbooks because it always oh, gives me great pleasure to see you know cookbooks what? outside a kitchen. So we have this... Nadella Kitchen and Made in Sicily by Giorgio Locatelli. This is purely ironic because I can't cook for shit. Um, and people have given me these books. I actually used to, no, I, like, I used to work at Vintage. So I took a copy of Nigella, because it's Nigella, and a friend of mine sent me um, Giorgio Locatelli, um, and I keep them there in the hopes that one day I'll open them and actually make use of them. That day has yet to come. Do you like reading them anyway? I like kind of going through them and looking at the pictures. But it's funny, isn't it, how Nigella is kind of like Beyonce, where no matter where you are and who you are and where you stand culturally... You feel something when you hear her name. Yeah, you do. Um, And I remember when I worked at Vintage, I remember meeting her for the first time and just being completely mesmerised by her. Um, She has a very striking kind of aura. I remember sitting next to her while she was signing her books and just constantly staring at her and pretending not to stare like a stalker because she was so beautiful. When did you work at Vintage? Um, So I was there between, I think, 2008... I did photocopying for like a year and then I was a publicity assistant for two years um, and I th- think I left in 2011. Was that uh, quite soon after you graduated? Um, yeah, a few years, so I did my, yeah, it was quite soon actually after I graduated, um, after I did my master's in creative writing, yeah. And did that make you want to write more? Oh, absolutely. I only got into publishing, I remember doing my MA and someone said, you know, even if you can get a job as a cleaner at a publisher's, do it because that's one of the best ways to get noticed and to just have an inside track on things. And so I um, did the other thing and I became a photocopy and I just hung around for a year until they felt sorry for me and were like, you know what, we've got an assistance job, do you want it? And I was like, yes, please give it to me. Actually, that's slipping your own book in the pages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so like crossing out, I'm trying to think of a vintage author, like by... Um... I don't know, Martin Amos, yeah. like, nope, by Aisha. <laughs> Ian, Ian McEwan, Ace by all the, all the wonderful ones. What was the ones, first yeah. book that you worked on? Oh, I did, um, I, so I didn't do many campaigns on my own, but I do remember working on Brian Chiquava's Harari North um, and Fatima Butoh's Songs of Blood and Sword, right Ooh. there on the right-hand side. Um, and I... You know, I helped out with Ian McEwan and A.S. Byatt, and it was just, it was really amazing. So this is a really, really special book because it's a, um, it's a record of your, like, God, Fashion Mabita, I'm doing it again. Yeah, I'm being really reductive. You know what? She's Let's... stunning all the pictures. <laughs> Fancy all the writers. <laughs> I'm sorry. So what was the experience of working on this? Was it ever kind of intimidating? Was it exciting? It was really exciting. And it was nice to work uh, with an author who's also Pakistani um, and kind of, and I was felt like I was um, able to actually be a bit more helpful than usual with the publicity and with setting up events and stuff. So it was, yeah, it was really great fun. But it sounds like an experience like that must have been a, 
a real confidence boost in a new job to really connect with something. I loved being a publicity assistant. Well, no, I mean, I hated it in that there was a lot of crap I had to do. But I loved being around, um, being in an atmosphere where everyone loved books um, and just being able to work with so many amazing authors and getting to have like conversations with people like Louis de Bernier and um, Antonio Bayat. And just that's where you, as a writer, you kind of find inspiration, even when you're writing something that's a romantic comedy or whatever you're writing, just being around those kind of professionals is inspiring. I wonder if as well it just demystifies it enough Just because I think that if you're someone who longs to write and longs to write books and it can feel so remote and scary and then you go, oh no, I've seen them eating toast. I've (laughs) had to give them train tickets. I've seen them lose train tickets. It's fine. This is something that's for everyone. And you know, um, it also teaches you the type of author not to become once you're published. Uh, Well, we don't have to (laughs) name names. (laughs) We're not going to name names, but you know, there are stories. I'm here for your your stories if you have (laughs) any. you know, just um, really kind of high-strung authors who are a friend of mine once worked with an author who asked her to flush the toilet her own toilet I don't know why she didn't want to flush her own toilet but there we have it and I remember you know it's just not a glamorous job I remember going to an author's launch party at an agent's house and everyone was kind of milling around and networking and we were all in the kitchen taking out the rubbish bin bag the bin bags (laughs) and you know washing up you know there are some authors that you meet that are just wonderful And there are some authors who you meet who are just a nightmare. I remember um, one author who I worked with, it was Ramadan, so I'd been fasting. And I kind of, I was speaking to him, I kind of made a joke of it. I was like, oh, you know, I'm fasting, but I promise I won't get anything wrong or mess up your flights or whatever. He's like, oh, you're Muslim. And I said, yes, I am. He's like, right, okay. And um, and then he called the office and um, was put through to my boss. And he needed to speak to me and he said, oh, I needed to speak to that... That, that that Muslim girl. <laughs> <laughs> Completely forgotten my name, which is fine. I mean, it was funny. It was funny because you, you take it. I don't think people are hateful. I think people can be, um, you know, subconsciously kind of um, ignorant. Um, but I, it's, it doesn't come from a place of malice. So I kind of saw the comedy in it, but still. Even so, uh, yeah, it's, quite... it's startling. I'm, I'm so sorry that happened no, to you. No, that's okay. My boss was also kind of outraged. She was like, this is just, uh, this is everything that's wrong with publishing. But, and I also had a, a, a colleague who's also brown. And um, and she started work at Chateau when there were actually no brown people um, in publishing. And um, she went to a party and an author came up to her and said, oh, you're quite exotic looking for here, aren't you? Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> so, I mean... Was that like, supposed to be a line? Like a chatting up? Who knows? Um, but it all makes for entertaining stories, doesn't it? I mean, you sort of, you, you hope it's it's shifting, but... Yeah, no, I mean... I don't know. I don't know. Have I come up against something recently? Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure I must have, but I, I can't remember it, which it's is a shame. I did want to ask you about is how that impacts upon the way you feel kind of as a writer and as an author. Because I think as a person who, you know, this has sort of been something that you always wanted to do... I think one does romanticise it a bit. And do you feel like having been at, in the middle of things, mm. you feel like you're, it sort of demystified your own identity as an author? Do you um, I, behave in a different way than you thought you would? I think it really brought home in a very stark way how different I am from everyone around me in publishing. And not in an awful way, um, but I think that maybe if I had grown up in a very middle-class Asian household, my experience would be very different. Um, but I grew up in a very working-class household, and so there was always that feeling of being very different and cultural references that I didn't always get, um, and I'd be angry about my parents not, like, you know, showing me more about middle-class white life, I guess. But it really, it it kind of um, cemented this idea that, okay, of embracing that identity of being from a working-class background um, and being Muslim, being a practising Muslim, because, you know, um, there weren't any Scarfies in Random House. I mean, there was one, but she worked in finance, so that doesn't count. I think it subconsciously kind of um, showed me that what I want to whatever I write about, it will, 
it will kind of pick at that idea around being maybe a, a Muslim um, and that faith and identity would play a prominent part in whatever I wrote about because I think that sense of feeling separate actually lent itself to more a more kind of authentic creativity. And I think, yeah, that must be really important for you as an author that it's, it reinforces this idea that there's an urgency in your writing because it needs to be said because you're in a unique position to I, say it. Yeah, I mean, I love writing, you know, whether whatever that's about. I love um, storytelling. But um, and I don't I don't want kind of identity and faith to be at the core of everything I write about, even though having said that, my third book is literally all about belonging and faith and identity, which um, now that's got this green and pleasant land, isn't it? Sometimes I, I forget the this. Um, but I I read it recently and I genuinely adored it because it's so evocative of that English identity is so weird. And there are so many ways of, of kind of, you know, inversions of it and permutations. And I guess I could really, you know, see and hear the, you know, the Austin and the Mitford and all of those social observations mm. in there as well. Is, are there any books that you read while you wrote it or books that you had in your head? Well, the Bible, obviously. Ah, how <laughs> could I not realise? Obviously, um, because there's a priest in it. And I, actually, I didn't read the whole Bible, but um, I did flick through it um I was also reading Watching the English by Kate Fox um which is a, a kind of observation of English identity all around England in the UK um which was really helpful and gave you know I'm sure um inspired a lot of the ideas that I ended up using um and oh I read the, because my agent told me I must. And I never read anything other than Harry Potter by J.K. Rowling, only because I didn't want to be disappointed. Mm. And my agent said, you have to read The Casual Vacancy if you're writing this book. And I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. I read that book and I absolutely loved it. It was amazing. She's so wonderful at kind of painting nuanced characters um, and addressing social issues and um, in a way that gets to the core of what humanity is. So I read that, and um, I also read Big Little Lies, ah. which isn't a kind of obvious book, but my agent also suggested that I read that, and I absolutely loved it. And I read all these while I was in Dorset doing my research for oh, the third book. Where was in Dorset, were you? West Dorset, um, so, so near Dorchester. Right, right, right. I'm, um, my mum and dad are from not a million miles from there, sort of Swanage way. Oh, okay. Um, so. I stayed in a little village called Longbreedy um, in this huge house basically a mansion was that as a sort of a formal writer's retreat um I guess so yeah I mean my 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 then boss when I used to work at Cornerstone's literary consultancy um used to live in the west wing of this mansion and she said why don't you go there the owners of the house Harriet and Anthony are absolutely lovely and why don't you do that for a month so I ended up taking her up on that suggestion and I went and it was it was incredible. It was a really great month just speaking to people, speaking to um, local parish councillors, going to meetings, um, speaking to the local priest um, and just asking people, you know, how would you feel if there was a mosque built in your village? And it was just really wonderful to see people react in a, such an English way. Oh, well, you know... <laughs> I'd mind as long as there's not that call to prayer out loud and you know I don't mind Muslims at all just as I just don't like the idea of like gated communities and the Muslims that don't integrate and it was just it was um you know these are these are kind people um and this one particular lady I'm talking about she bought me lamb chops um, and, you know, was very happy to talk about her experience as a councillor, um, parish councillor and um, council member, rather. What's your writing process like? Do you find a flow? Do you... Oh, Daisy, there is no process. <laughs> it's just trying to cobble together a lot of shit and hope that it doesn't sound shit in the end. It's Once I have an idea, I'm usually very good at writing the first few thousand words and then I kind of get get a bit of a block 
I tend to, once I'm focused on one book, and I haven't done this for my fourth book yet, but once I'm, I do have a daily word target. So I'll say I need to re write um, 1,000 to 1,500 words this day, Monday to Friday, and I try to make it like a professional job. It's just trying to, getting to that point, which is mm. which is hard and often takes so more than a few months. So do you plot what you're doing yeah, in advance? Do, do you know how it's going to end when you I, sit down? Yeah, well, not necessarily how it will end, but I do have a very strong structure in place because... Um, when I wrote my first book, it was a nightmare to restructure when um, I was asked to revise it, and I just didn't want to go through that ever again. Were you doing that while you were working? Were you getting up early in the morning and writing? Um, no, so I was very bad at that, um, working and trying to find time to write. So I left Random House, and I ended up working part-time as an editor with a literary consultancy. And so that was great because my bosses would help me brainstorm and um, you know we'd work on ideas together and I'd be able to work because I was only working part-time I was working three days a week um, so I'd write on the other two days and then once I got this idea for Sophia Khan it just kind of I managed to just kind of get it done it took a few years though on and off I think that's really really comforting to hear I think lots of people have that initial enthusiasm and they're really productive and then you do run out of steam because middles are hard oh middles are the worst and you know it's always a baggy middle mm. isn't it there's never a tight middle um and that's not a euphemism for anything <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it should be um yeah no it's it is... a real jimmy car laugh <laughs> yeah middles are hard um Beginnings are always where you find the, the I find you find the flow because you're really excited and passionate and you're like, yeah, this is going to be great. And then you're kind of 5,000 words in and you're like, oh, shit, this is really a load of bollocks. Um, What's the short story market like these days? <laughs> well, short stories are kind of, I kind of, I, I think there's a real art to them that I've not quite yet figured out. Have you have you written any? I've just recently written one for an anthology that's going to be coming out um, next year. But yeah, I've just written one short story, which I actually really, really enjoy doing. Um, but it took a lot longer than I thought it would, just because, you know, they're so character focused. Mm. Um, and you want to, you know, I, then I, I did read a lot of short stories. I love Richard Yates's short stories. Um, I love Re Re Revolutionary Road, but his short stories are incredible. So I read um, a lot of him while I was um, working on it and also a bit of Raymond Carver and what we talk about oh, when we talk about nice. that. nice. Grace Paley, who I... I bought this book. I know Grace Paley. Oh, it? really? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So it's Virago, which is a very encouraging well, sign. Finally, I bought this when I did my master's because my supervisor told me to read it. He said, she's amazing, you should read it. I really think you'd benefit from it. And I never did because I never listened to any of my tutors. Um, and then my friend, Isla, um, said, you should read Grace Paley's short stories. They're incredible. And oh my God, I've never read anything like it. They are These absolutely incredible. Brilliant. I mean, the just the characters that come to life within sentences, just the writing is so... It's, it's, it's not even beautiful. The writing is just constantly surprising. Like sentence by sentence, it just, I could never imagine constructing a sentence in, you know, in that way. It's just, she, she's really wonderful. It's very inspiring. I always think of Richard Yates as being someone where there are just, there's so much sadness in the bones mm. of those stories. And they're so beautiful, but mm. they ache. And then a different kind of melancholy in Raymond Carver. But this looks like there might be some jokes in it. No, it's, yeah, I mean, I've not read the whole thing, but it's it, it it's wonderful. Um, do you always finish books? Do no. you give up forever or do you always plan to return to them? I hate giving up on books. What did I read recently where I, it's so painful to finish, um, but I did it because it's meant to, oh God, what was it? It was, Oh, it was, um, oh, uh, I'll tell you because I then started reading The Orphan Master's Son and I put that to one side. Um, oh, The Long, The Narrow, The the Narrow Road, Richard, to the, Richard Flanagan. Ah! Which people, you know, people whose um, opinions on books I really admire and I usually love. And the writing was beautiful. You know, I think it was just timing. It's one of those books that I couldn't engage with at that time. I hate not being able to finish books, so I do try. I think it's that's fair enough, though, isn't it? Yeah. That you can sort of say, I can respect this person's craft, but it's not for me. Yeah, yeah. When do you read? Usually at night, in bed. Best time. 
an hour before going to sleep. Oh, wow. You're reading The Idiot by Dostoevsky, yeah. which is something I struggle to say. How are you finding it? I'm loving it. So I read Crime and Punishment and a friend of mine said The Idiot is, is better than that. And I loved Crime and Punishment. Um, Asia has the most beautiful... The first time, I think in all of our, your books, where I found someone with a proper bookmark. It's gorgeous silver feather. It was a gift from around. my writer friend. She writes children's books. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. I read a novel, I think I read it last year, or maybe the year before, um, by um, Elif Batman, also called The Idiot. And oh. I'm not sure, I think there were meant to be maybe elements of the story. In that I don't think you call your own book The Idiot unless it's a little bit of an homage or a reference. Mm. Um, But it sounds like there are some shared elements and themes, but that might be a coincidence. Interesting. Was it a good book? Really, really good. Really funny. Very kind of dry. It was, it reads like a Noah Baumbach film. Mm. And I love a Noah Baumbach film, so... Mm. But I should definitely read the the yeah. original Idiot. It's yeah, I'm really really enjoying it, and I I needed a book that I could just kind of that felt like a page turner after the slog of my last book. Can you remember reading any books where you had a feeling that you possibly weren't supposed to be reading it? That if a teacher or parent found it, they might yeah. have words to say. It's an interesting idea. I didn't think I don't think so. Although, did you ever read any? Sometimes of... I sometimes read the English um, version of the Quran on the tube and feel slightly petrified, <laughs> <laughs> as well as spiritually enlightened. Yeah, so I guess that's something that I might cover up now and again, especially if I'm on a plane. <laughs> Weird answer it's, to a, a question, it's but there we are. Incredibly powerful book to to own, and it's so interesting that the book hasn't changed but the world we live in yeah. has well, have yeah. you have you read it in its entirety or is yeah it... um, I've read it in Arabic uh, more than once several times it's just kind of a routine that we Muslims do and um, the English version I read um, frequently um, just so because I can't understand Arabic it's always nice to understand what you're meant to believe in I mean Arabic is a really soothing language and I always I always feel quite kind of peaceful and comforted when I read it but is it ever spoken allowed you listen to people yeah, reading yeah absolutely it? um I tend to listen to surahs from the which are verses from the Quran um via YouTube um just because I find it rhythmic and um comforting I think there's so much more to language and words isn't there than what we think of as kind of the literal sense Mm. or, you know, this idea of meaning, it's so much less narrow than we think. And I think the sound of something can be so evocative. Because I've taken a few classes um, just about learning about Islam and traditions and, um, you know, especially because of the kind of narrative negative portrayals we have now, you know, really trying to understand it and adapt it for a, a kind of modern living standard um, and I, I I did a course and they were really focusing on the kind of grammatical aspects of the Arabic language and how just an intonation kind of like Chinese I guess um, gives a different meaning not only to that word but to the context um, and it kind of it colours everything just via where a certain punctuation mark is placed you know if it's um, if if it's a certain way then it means something different or can can mean something different it's really very fascinating kind of analysis of the Arabic language which gives different meaning which is why an interpretation is kind of um, a bit of a cheat because it can never you can never fully understand um, what the Quran is telling you unless you read it in its pure Arabic form which is kind of impossible for someone like me who can't understand Arabic. Well, I think that leads us to some other books I wanted to ask you about. I see the Neapolitan novels. I love those so much. It it sort of breaks my heart that I can't read them in Italian. Do you know what? I would love, love, love to read those in Italian because if they are that gorgeous in English, Mm. I can't imagine what they're like in Italian. Because that is so... I'm so curious about that process of translation to... Mm make them so beautiful and obvious and because also so much of those books is about the difference in terms of the formality of language Mm. and the way people speak to each other and that comes up so clearly in the English and I'm assuming I don't know but I'm guessing that it's not it's a much more literary translation than a literal one 
Mm, yeah, I wonder. That's um, an interesting point. Um, you know, just the the pressure on the translator also yeah. to kind of honour what the initial text is and stay true to that. But also I wonder about, because the prose for Elena Ferrante is so... I mean, she does so much with her work, but to maintain that kind of... When you're translating, to maintain that kind of rhythm. Yeah. When something's literary, to maintain a rhythm is actually... Because, some, you know, some sentences you read almost have a beat to them. Yes. Um, and to be able to translate that must be really difficult. And I wonder whether people succeed or not there's something that in places reading those in translation it makes me think of philip glass or something that really it's sort of sycophantic sycophantic i've not said that right i'm syncopated um i was trying not sycophantic (laughs) syncopated but rigid and yeah the beats the way the beats fall is so deliberate and so controlled Mm. do you have any romantic heroes that you are absolutely convinced by do you have any book crushes and do you have anyone where you're like I'm supposed to fancy them but I do not I really do not um, I um, love Rochester give me Rochester over Darcy any day of the week um, that's a worrying answer. <laughs> it's, it's like, it is maybe should we maybe edit that out um, no I just and I think maybe it's because I saw the BBC production with Ruth Wilson and what's his face Toby I can't remember, Stevens, is it? I, I can't remember so. the name, yeah. Um, I think his portrayal of Rochester is so wonderful that, yeah, I kind of fell in love with that character, even though I'd read Jane before having watched it. And I don't think I had the same feelings for him while reading. Or maybe I did. Darcy's kind of overrated, I feel. Because I think that... That's perhaps my one... Something I really take issue with with Lizzie. It's quite a teenagery thing to do to see someone being a real asshole at a party. Be like, oh, I bet he's really mysterious and sexy. Like, no, he's just rude. He's just rude. <laughs> oh, you know, I know. I think we're. Are we meant to despise him? Angel in Tess Durbervilles. Mm. Hated him so much. I think we're. Are we meant to hate him? I don't know. This is possibly controversial. I don't know. I need to do Googling. When I've, I've read um, Thomas Hardy Under Duress, being from Dorset, it was all like, oh, we're going to, we're sending you to a Thomas Hardy theme park for the school trip. It's a hay bale. <laughs> An actor who's going to pretend to whip himself. I'm always a bit pissed off by the way Hardy treats women and seems to have real contempt for them and you're you know and you know you could absolutely say no it's because of the times he was reflecting the times but there's lots of punishing of the spirited ones and rewarding of the boring oh, ones far from the madding crowd because I that's one of my favorite books and Bathsheba is just a fierce force to be reckoned with so I, well, I can't remember how things end for Bathsheba um she gets with what's his face a really nice guy um, he's completely devoted to, to her throughout the book. What, what we would call a player. Really? Crowd. Oh, I loved Far From the Madding Crowd so much. This kind of devoted, faithful servant of hers um, who she completely overlooks because she wants to be independent and then she marries the wrong people. Um, she's independent, she's fierce, she doesn't want to settle down until she's kind of made her mark on the world. She's I, she's incredible for... In, she's an incredible character for modern times, let alone those times. So I don't know. I know what you mean when it comes to Tess Durbervilles and that's why I didn't really like that book because I was like, what is this? Why is she so intent on punishing herself for something that wasn't her fault? But I think that's perhaps... Far From the Madding Crown is perhaps um, the kind of the, the other side of that. Well, I think you have... Fixed my Thomas Hardy prejudice. There we are. I'm going to read Far From the Madding Crowd. It's wonderful. And I'm going to... Have you watched the film? Um, David Nichols is the adaptation. And I oh, love him. Oh, I love him. David Nichols, if you're listening, he's a fan of the podcast. <laughs> oh, he's wonderful. And a dream future guest. Oh, so. yeah, you know, he's... he's um... oh, this is great. I'm going to go and I'm going to embrace. Because, you know, he was inspired... One day was inspired by Far From the Madding Crowd. No. Yes. No. Oh, you have to read it. Shut up. There we are, David. Are you, you're not just saying that yeah. to make me read it. No, no, absolutely not. So um, I don't want to give it away. So I don't want it to. I don't want any to give any spoilers. I'm assuming you've read it one day. Yes. And everyone listening has read I've one day. Not read far from the magic crowd. But I've read one day at so, least fifteen times. So there's a there's a bit in the book where Bathsheba is um, filling out um, all these kind of dates in her diary, and it occurs to her 
that, um, you know, there's the one date which we never know and we can never mark in our diary, which is the day you die. Um, and apparently that inspired David Nichols to think about one, one, one day. day. Huge thanks to Aisha. She's at Aisha underscore Malik on Twitter. Follow her, tell her how wonderful she is and rush out and buy this green and pleasant land. It's a Leslie Nope of a book, funny, smart and cracking with energy. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I have been your book inspector. Thanks so much for joining me, fellow readerphiles. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at TheDaisyBee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acars.com slash booked for more information about our guest and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and it's hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate and leave us a review. We always love hearing what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. I'll see you next time. For now, I'll leave you with some words from Groucho Marx. Outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. Inside a dog, it's too dark to read. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.